I invite you to remain standing for the reading of God's Word. Our gospel lesson today comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 14. We're starting the reading about halfway through at verse 15 and then through the end of that chapter. Let us hear God's Word. Jesus said, If you love me, keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. Before long, the world will see me no more. But you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. On that day, you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them and show myself to them. Then Judas, not Judas Iscariot, said, But Lord, why do you intend to show us yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus replied, Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. Anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. All this I have spoken while still with you. But the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you, not as the world gives, give I to you. Do not let your hearts be troubled, and do not be afraid. You heard me say, I am going away, and I am coming back to you. If you love me, you would be glad that I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. I have told you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe. I will not say much more to you, for the prince of this world is coming. He has no charge over me, but he comes so that the world may learn that I love the Father and do exactly what my Father has commanded us. Come now, let us leave. May God bless to us this reading of his word, and to him be all praise and honor and glory now and always. Amen. So there's really only been one time in all my years as a father when I thought I reached the level of parenting genius. And it happened the day after our second uh, daughter was born, uh, and we were telling our firstborn daughter, Shelly, that, you know, you're going to be a big sister. And uh, this was back in the dark ages. There was no gender reveal party. You had to wait for the baby to be born before you knew if it was a boy or a girl. And uh, so uh, Megan was born, and went home and told uh, Shelly, hey, you've got a new baby sister, and we're going to go to the hospital to see mom and see baby Megan. And so we took Shelly there, and uh, I sat down on the bed holding Megan, and Shelly got up on the bed, and then she wanted to um, pull down the swaddling clothes a little bit, and I got nervous. I didn't know what was going to happen next. And then she very gently bent over and kissed baby Megan. And I thought, we did it parenting geniuses. (laughs) And then we took baby Megan home, and then Shelly pouted for the next six weeks. So uh, 
But the reality really hit about two years later. Um, we'd put both daughters to bed and, and up, upstairs in the bedroom, and uh, Lori and I were downstairs practicing for a church play. And in the lines of that church play, Lori had to say, we're having a baby, okay? And uh, she's very good at saying lines with a lot of emotions. So she said, we're having a baby. And at that moment, we didn't know that Shelley had got out of bed, come down with us at the stairs listening to us. And when she heard Lori say, we're having a baby, she goes, no more babies, only Megan. <laughs> and I understand where she's coming from because you, there, you can have a good thing and you can have too much of a good thing, right? And for many Christians, that's the way we feel about the Holy Spirit. Uh, some of you have been following uh, last month at Asbury University, which is a Christian school in Wilmore, Kentucky. Uh, they had a typical chapel, and some students stayed around to continue praying after the chapel time. They kept on praying, and they prayed 24 hours a day for days and, and weeks. And there was a sense, uh, we hope, that this is a movement of God, that God will do something great uh, uh, and lasting out of that. But there's also been a lot of nervous chatter about the whole thing. I've, I've read editorials saying, well, it's too political, and editorials saying it was not political enough, and some saying it's not scriptural enough, and not social justice enough, and all sorts of things, because there's this nervousness. When God does something unexpected, it's out of our control, and what do we do with that? It reminded me of 50 years ago um, in Southern California, so I don't know if this was the day that I was baptized, but the day I was baptized looked very much like this in Corona Del Mar. I was baptized that day with 200 of my closest friends who were also baptized that same day. Uh, and this went on for uh, the first Saturday of every month. We'd go out for these baptismal services because so many people wanted to be baptized. There was this great movement of God. And it went on for month after month and year after year for years always between 150 to 250 people baptized every month. And at that time, people were saying, well, we think it's a good thing, but is it lasting? Is it real? Is it just emotion? Is it a real movement of God? And so when we get to the Gospel of John and Jesus starts saying that the Holy Spirit is coming, we think, so that's good, right? It's not something we have to worry about. So today we want to look at what Jesus says here about the Holy Spirit and the promise of the Holy Spirit so that we can realize it really is a good thing, that the Spirit has come into our lives to stay. We want to look at the context of the, the promise of the Spirit. We also want to look at the two things that Jesus says the Spirit will do in our lives. The Spirit will bring us comfort and the Spirit will bring us clarity. And just so you, you have an understanding of where we're trying to go with this, we want to have a sense that God is not against us but for us. God is not absent in our lives but present in our lives every day. And God doesn't leave us to figure things out on our own, but the Spirit is in our lives to lead us every single day. So first, let's talk about the context of this, and we'll look at the context of uh, the physical context, first of all, the upper room. Where exactly does this take place and why this is significant? So not in the Gospel of John, but if you look at the story as it comes to us in the Gospel of Mark or the Gospel of Luke, we have uh, it, it said that Jesus sends a couple of disciples, they find a man, they lead those disciples 
to an upper room that is fully furnished, and there they prepare the Passover meal, the Last Supper that they'll eat together. And they use the Greek word anagion, and uh, later on in the book of Acts, after Jesus has died and been raised and ascended to heaven, the disciples are still meeting in an upper room, and they use a different Greek word, but it's a, a word that means the same thing, upper room. So the, apparently the early Christians had this practice in Jerusalem of meeting together in an upper room. So where would you find an upper room in Jerusalem in the time of Jesus? And you would find that on the western hills. So this is an aerial shot of Jerusalem looking about due north. Uh, the blue arrow is where I live. That's about my dorm window there at Jerusalem University College. And the red arrow is the traditional site of the Last Supper. So if you visit that western hill area, so this is the southwestern part of the city between the Central Valley and the Valley of Hinnom, you'll be taken to this room, which is the site where we remember the Last Supper, and you're going to say, well, gosh, is that the very room itself? Well, this room was built in the 12th century AD, so you can do the math on that. Uh, revised in the 14th century, made into a, um, a mosque in the 16th century, and the 20th century opened up for all faiths to go and uh, worship there. So uh, not from the time of Jesus, but there was earlier um, times where they built on the same site. A lot of activity happened in the 4th century, we know, because of, there was a fire here in the last couple of years. So in doing the repairs for that, they said, hey, let's do a little bit more uh, examination of the archaeology. If you look on the outside, you'll see these very large stones, much larger than the other stones that are used to construct the building. And those are two stones from the time of Jesus, uh, ashlar blocks, Herodian blocks. Uh, and there seems to be at the very bottom uh, level of this, which is commemorated as the uh, tomb of King David, not the tomb of King David, but it's remembered there. Uh, that seems to be from the first um, century as well. So I say that it's about in the right place on the Western Hill because archaeological work on the uh, Western Hill has been done in the 20th century from 1967 on. And three things we found in every home from the New Testament period that we've been covered on the Western Hill. These things have been true. First, there's always a mosaic floor tile in some geometric pattern. We see these are from two different homes from the time of Jesus on the Western Hill. Second, every one of these homes has a mikvah, a ceremonial bath. You'll see that one on the right. There's a, an entranceway that's divided, and you would go down one way into the, to a ceremonial wash, and then up a different way at, because you're kosher after you washed. Every home had one of those mikvah in it. And the third thing that every these, one of these homes had are foundations that were wide enough to support a second story. Because if, if you're going to have an upper room, you have to have a second story in the building. Here's one uh, architectural reconstruction. One of these homes, this home from the time of Jesus on the Western Hill was 6,500 square feet. That's a Paradise Valley size home, right? <laughs> so for the upper room to take place, you have to be in the wealthy part of Jerusalem. The Western Hill is the wealthy part of Jerusalem. Now here's where it gets tricky. If you go for a tour there, like if you go with uh, Pastor Steve and Pastor Drew this fall, you'll be taken there and you'll say, where this happens, the Western Hill is Mount Zion. And you'll say, wait, that doesn't make sense. Isn't Mount Zion where the temple was, you know? Beautiful for situations, the joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion on the sides of the north. And the Western Hill is on the south. So how does that make sense? Well, in the Byzantine time around the fourth century, they looked at this prophecy in Micah that says, 
And many nations shall come and say, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And looking at that, the Byzantine Christians, our forebearers said, well, that must mean that not only was the upper room the site of the promise of the Holy Spirit, but the upper room must be the site of the realization of that promise, the fulfillment of that promise on the day of Pentecost. So Mount Zion moved from where the green arrow is to where the red arrow is, but not to the blue arrow where my dorm room was. But that's the... <laughs> so uh, what do you take from all that? The, the same space is commemorating the promise and the fulfillment. Uh, the first thing uh, you need to remember is you need to sign up for that trip to the Holy Land that Pastor Steve and Pastor Drew are doing. But the second thing to remember is that there is closeness, closeness in terms of the chronology. The fulfillment of this promise Jesus gives uh, at the Last Supper happens less than two months later. And sometimes God does that with our prayers, where God answers quickly the things that we long for. So that's the physical context, but there also, as you read the story, there's the context of the cross. The cross happens the next day. And there are hints in what Jesus says to his disciples that the cross is coming. He says in verse 19, before long, the world will not see me anymore. They will not see me anymore because he's going to be killed and put in a tomb. And then verse 28, you heard me say, I'm going away. He's going away because he's going to die. And then I've told you now before it happens so that when it does happen, you will believe me. And uh, very interestingly, it's only in the Gospel of John that we hear Jesus say these words from the cross. He's th it's the only place that these words from the cross of Jesus are recorded. It is finished, meaning here this word of triumph. It is finished. That which the Father called me to do, I have done. That which I told you was going to happen has happened. I have uh, stayed true to the will of the Father to the very end. It is finished. And the third context for these words is the resurrection. And again, in this same passage in John 14, in the words that Jesus says, there's this hint that the death of Christ is not the end of the story. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. I will come to you because after I have died, I will be raised. Before long, the world will see, not see me anymore. I will die. But you will see me because I will be raised. Because I live, you also will live. You will be spiritually alive now, and one day you too will be physically raised from death. Later on in the Gospel of John, in one of the resurrection appearances of Jesus, he comes to the disciples and says to them three times, peace be with you. And then he adds, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. So Jesus connects again his resurrection to the promise of the Spirit. So what do we do with this, all this context? So I want you to think in your life a time when you've had God uh, act very quickly uh, in your life. It was less than two months between the promise of the Spirit and the fulfillment of the Spirit. When has God worked quickly in your life? When have you seen an answer to prayer that happened in a short amount of time rather than a long amount of time, because sometimes God does that. Sometimes God answers us quickly, and that uh, is something that encourages me to keep on being diligent in my prayer. And second, uh, Jesus reassures his disciples that they will not be left orphaned. When is a time in your life where you've wondered if God had forgotten you? 
And when has there been a time in your life when you were very certain that God had not forgotten you at all? Because our feelings can go up and down on this. And Jesus is trying to reassure us that, you know, God is really for you. God loves you. God is really on your side. And wherever you are emotionally, you need to remember that, that God is for you. So if that's the context of this promise, let's look at the two things that Jesus said the Spirit will do. One of those is comfort. The Spirit will remind us over and over again that God is not distant, but God is with us. God will be in our lives as a helping presence. Jesus says, I will ask the Father, and He will give you another advocate to help you. And He uses the Greek word parakletos. Sometimes you hear the Latin version of that, paraklete. Maybe you've heard that. The Greek version, the original version is parakletos. Kletos comes from two Greek words. Uh, one of them means, uh, para means beside, and kletos means uh, somebody that is appointed or called for something. So the basic meaning is someone who's uh, uh, called into your life to, to walk with you, to, to be with you. And so that can be variously translated as helper or intercessor or advocate or mediator. It was also used a couple of times, uh, not in the scriptures, but in uh, other ancient Greek literature for lawyer. And my brother, who's a lawyer, says, every once in a while, lawyers help. So, you know, it kind of goes with this. But just so that we're clear on this, Jesus says this parakletos is there to help you. The Holy Spirit comes into our lives to help us. A helping presence, it's also the full presence of God. And here we need to get into the weeds a little bit theologically. Jesus says, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. The Father will love them, and we will come to them to make our home with them. The God the Father, God the Son will make their home in us. And then later, the Spirit of truth, you know him, for he lives with you, and he will be in you. In other words, when the Spirit comes to dwell in us, that's the full presence of God. All that God is comes to dwell with us. In the Old Testament times, the Spirit would come and leave, would come to, uh, on somebody to anoint them for a particular work, a prophecy or a leadership, and then the Spirit would leave when the work was done or when God's favor no longer was with that person. But now the full presence of God has come to stay with us. So if we look at how this is explained in the uh, eco-essential tenets, it uses these precise theological terms. The three persons, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, are co-substantial of the same substance with one another, being both co-eternal. It's not that God the Father made the Son or the Spirit. They've always existed together. And they're co-equal. One's not better than the other, bigger than the other. They're all on the same level. Such that there are not three gods, nor are there three parts of God, but rather the three persons within the one Godhead. That's why we um, use phrases like, Jesus is in our hearts, when the promise is that the Holy Spirit would come to us. Because we believe when the Spirit comes to us, Jesus comes to us, and God the Father comes to us as well. It's the full presence of God. And then it is God's forever presence. He will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the spirit of truth. Think about that when um, Jesus makes the promise just before he ascends to heaven. And behold, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. That the presence of God is not as it was in the Old Testament, to come and go, God has come into your life to stay. God loves you. God wants to be helpful presence in your life forever, and God remains with us. So again, uh, let's take a moment and say, well, how do we bring these things home? 
I want you to think in your lives of a friend that you've had for at least half of your life. Uh, some of us, it, it's, that would mean a few more years than others, but a friend that's been in your life about half of, of your life or more, what has helped you stay in contact with that friend? Has it been some way that you communicate regularly? Has it been uh, the fact that you were in some really hard time and you made it through together? Is that the thing that has kept you friends for all those years? And then I want you to think about what helps you remember that the Lord is always present with you. You know, some of us are carrying around these uh, nails now in our pockets during Lent to remind us about uh, the fact that God is with us and what Christ has done for us. Uh, we got out uh, Easter decorations uh, yesterday and we're putting out a sign that said, He is risen. So we have things in our house that remind us uh, that God is always with us. What helps you remember that God is always with you? And how has God been a helpful presence in your life? What memories come to mind when you think that God has been with me? God has helped me in my life. And the other way that Jesus says the Holy Spirit will be operative in our lives, the Holy Spirit brings clarity. The Holy Spirit is the way that God leads us in life. First, the Holy Spirit teaches us, but the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things. Um, when I was in kindergarten, uh, it was half-day kindergarten, so I came home, took the bus, and uh, was dropped off at our ranch, and I would often go to my grandmother's house, which was on the other end of the ranch, and she was a kindergarten teacher, and that meant at her house you had lots of construction paper and crayons and scissors and glue, and I had a gay old time. I'm just working with all these things, and, and my grandmother would always ask me, Bruce, what did you learn today in school? And I would tell her the things that we learned today. And there was one day I couldn't think of what I had learned that day in school. And my grandmother said, Bruce, I want you to always try to learn one new thing every day. And that lesson stuck with me. So I've gone through life with this expectancy that there are always things for me to learn. I'm not, I've not arrived uh, as, as a, a person, as a student of life, and I've not arrived as a Christian. There's always new things to learn, and there's always things that God is teaching me. And God teaches us through the Holy Spirit's presence. The Holy Spirit also reminds us, but the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will remind you of everything you have said. Now, how many people have um, been following Christ for at least five years of your life? At least five years, okay. So you've heard lots of sermons, right? And lots of Bible studies. Do you remember every one that you've heard? Probably won't even remember this one. That's the way it goes. But, uh, <laughs> you know, we, we hear so many sermons, and, and, and every once in a while, we're in a situation where, boy, I wish I could remember something that relates to this, and we remember it. And we think, boy, that was great. Why do we remember that just at that moment? Because the Holy Spirit is reminding us. So we've got a lot of good material, a lot of good preachers here, a lot of good Bible teachers, but the Holy Spirit will bring to our mind, bring to our remembrance something that we need just at the right time. And the Holy Spirit brings clarity in our lives by bringing us God's peace. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your heart be troubled and do not be afraid. Uh, many of you are praying for our grandson, Andrew, who uh, two months from now will go through open heart surgery. He's three, three and a half. 
And on Thursday, um, our daughter Shelly called me out of the blue. And when she got me on the phone, she just started crying. It had just gotten to her. You know, they've got a good doctor, good surgeon, good uh, children's hospital in Fort Worth. But she says, you know, this is really serious. And we just talked together and uh, prayed together and reminded one another that God really has this. God really does rule and overrule all things. And the fact that we're able to have on better days peace about it is God's work in our lives. Amen? So what has the Lord been teaching you lately? If, like my grandmother said, you learn one new thing every day, what do you think God has been teaching you lately? What lessons have you learned? And what godly lessons do you need to relearn or be reminded of? Sometimes the second category is more than the first category, I realize, in my life too. And during a time of adversity, when have you had a sense of peace despite what was going on? And you could attribute that sense of peace to God's presence in your life. Sometimes we hear about God doing extraordinary things, and we hope that's the work of God's Spirit. We hope that will turn out well. We're a little nervous about it. But other times, God comes and works in our lives very personal ways, and we are reminded that we are part of a, a big family with a lot of brothers and sisters that have our backs. And we remember the promise of the Spirit. God is not against us, but for us. God is not distant, but with us. God has not left us to figure it out on our own. The Spirit is leading us each and every day. May the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of Almighty God, rest afresh on you and bring you His peace. Let's pray. Holy God, we thank You for Your goodness and grace. We thank You for the promise of the Holy Spirit and the reality of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Lord, continue to lead us. Continue to bring us clarity and be a comfort for us each and every day. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.